Welcome to A State of Mind, the podcast that brings together consciousness, meditation, mindfulness, psychology, psychedelics, and so much more in pursuit of this mystery we call life. This is Julian Royce. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today I'm speaking with April Poyman. April is a fellow therapist, and she is trained with wilderness therapy as well as somatic or body-based therapy. And she also works with psychedelics, psychedelic-assisted therapy. And I really appreciated getting to hear her perspective, how these three things, connecting more deeply with our own body, becoming more embodied, going out into wilderness, and psychedelic-assisted therapy or psychedelic medicine, they all can help us in some similar ways. Um, for one, they can all take us out of our, what's sometimes called our small self or our, our quote unquote ego, you know, our habitual normal ways of thinking and of experiencing ourselves and kind of fixating on our own problems. They can all help us to connect with something much larger than ourselves, the world around us, the natural world, um, even the universe. So I appreciated getting to hear her wisdom about all of that. And as always, there is more information and links to more resources in the show notes below. And as mentioned in previous podcasts, if you're listening and you would like to be part of a research study on the effects of psychedelics and meditation, go to ways-of-looking.com and you can participate in a really cool research study being done right now. And if you'd like to support the show, please check us out at patreon.com backslash state of mind. Again, more links in the show notes below. And without further ado, I bring you April Poyman. And I'm here today with April Poyman. April, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me and inviting me here. Yeah, my pleasure. And you work as a therapist here in Colorado. How would you describe yourself? How would you describe what you do exactly? Hmm. That would be a tough question. <laughs> that can be a little bit of a tough question, yeah. Um, I think I kind of work at the intersection between wilderness therapy, somatic therapy, and psychedelic therapy cool. with a lot of focus on trauma and attachment. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of different elements coming together. Yeah. There's so many different kinds of therapy and um, labels and, you know, but um, like somatic seems like that was originally how I connected with you, I think, like looking for a somatic therapist. And do you want to speak to that? Like the word soma means body and Mm -hmm. somatic is bringing us back into our body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's so much of our experience that happens moment by moment that is kind of outside of our conscious awareness, but is actually registered in our body Mm. and held in our body. And so much of what we learn as templates from our childhood gets stored in our body without us even necessarily being aware that it's there. And then we can run into an experience in the present moment that kind of taps back into that old material. And the body is the one that knows Mm. that, that Mm. responds to it. And so oftentimes things will happen outside of our awareness. We're not even um, conscious that something has come up that's reminding us of the past. 
and then we'll start to feel something, you know, a pit in the stomach or a tightening in right. the jaw or a sense of an emotion, like a sense of fear or a sense of anger or something. And then the mind will start to try and make sense of it. So the mind kind of comes later on. But if right. we're wanting to rewire some of those patterns, going back into the original wiring, which takes place in the body and in the nervous system, is kind of the most direct access point to it. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. It's a, like I said, access point, a way to potentially get deeper than just mm -hmm. the kind of surface level thoughts about things. Mm -hmm. I think we have so yeah. many ideas about who we are and what we should be doing and about how the world should be and all kinds of things. Yeah. And there's something about just letting the body tell the truth of what's true for us that just kind of cuts through all of that. Yeah. All of those ideas. That's that's interesting. Um, and I kind of, I kind of want to come back to that later, but like that mm -hmm. knowing what's true and telling and saying what's true for us mm -hmm. and how um, the body can help. But then it's like kind of up to us to figure that out. Right. Like mm -hmm. no one can tell you, no one outside of you can tell you what's true for you. And I think uh, most of us grow up without an awareness of how to understand what the body's telling us. Mm. Like we don't necessarily correlate, you know, feeling fear with a tightness in the belly or mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And yeah. so there's a process, um, which for me is one of the beginning stages of therapy and working with clients, is how do you start to receive the signals from the body? And then how do you start to understand what it might be trying to tell you? Mm -hmm. um, and so this is kind of drawing from Hakomi therapy. There's often a staying with the sensation and getting mm -hmm. curious about it and describing it. And then at some point, there's often a, like, if that sensation had a voice, what would it be saying? And starting to add a little bit more mm -hmm. layers of meaning to it and starting to get more information from the body. Like yeah. yeah. So yeah, if the sensations had a voice. And then, I mean, when I hear that, it's like putting voice, putting language to it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of connecting the two hemispheres of our brain, if we wanted mm -hmm. to look at it that way, that, that we're, we're bringing our more logical, you know, language-centered mm -hmm. thinking mind. We tend to think in sentences and words often mm -hmm. and putting, you know, make it kind of making sense of it, mm -hmm. right? And I think that can be healing and, and grounding and help us to regulate and calm down when we can mm -hmm. put something into words that feel true for us. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we jump too quickly to that. Sure, to yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and staying longer with the sensation and with the unknown and with the kind of murkiness of whatever the message might be <laughs> from the body. Um, I can, like for example, I, I had a client the other day and there was something where um, like her body was turning and it was something on one side of her and she was like, I don't know what this is. And we were mm -hmm. working with it and I went over into that space um, that was over on that side and Throughout the whole session, we didn't know what it was. Like she had words that were coming and stuff, but oh, she wow. didn't really know what it was. And then later on, she emailed me and she was like, I know exactly what that is now. Oh, and interesting. it just became clear later. But sometimes we rush too quickly to like, what does this mean? And what should yeah. I do with it? And to stay, and stay with the not knowing and not mm -hmm. need to put a period or a dot on it. And yeah. Totally. And to keep listening, right? Because there could always be more. There's always more there. Yeah. At least in my experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you... Like at the beginning, you said somatic, wilderness, and psychedelic mm -hmm. assisted therapy. Is that mm -hmm. all those pieces coming together? That's that's so interesting. So I wanted well, I wanted to ask you kind of towards the beginning a little bit about yourself and your life mm -hmm. and how you came called to do this kind of work with people to become a therapist to help people heal in this way. Because mm -hmm. usually there's I personally have started to resonate more and more with this kind of idea or archetype of the wounded healer mm -hmm. that often through our own suffering, there is the impulse to help others. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Also, I think a lot of people that I meet who have become healers or coaches or therapists, like it just felt like a calling that they had. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they they followed it. They felt like they had to listen to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I had a kind of a meandering route that wasn't always clear ahead yeah. of time where it was headed. Um, I think early on I had a lot of experiences that had me feeling a little bit separate and on the outside. And I did a lot of observation of human behavior and just kind of watching mm. and learning. Um, and then I had some some other experiences that were really formative to me. We traveled quite a bit when I was growing up. And mm. we would go often to Mexico and to places where there weren't that many people that looked like me. Mm. And I had a lot of experiences of kind of two kinds of reactions on the one hand, people coming up and wanting to touch my hair for good luck and like Mm. really wanting to be close to me. And then other people who looked at me with a lot of fear. And I think as a child that was confusing and also intriguing. Like how old would you have been? We started going when I was like two years old. So like through my entire childhood, we would go. Um, And then The other kind of set of experiences was by the time I was nine, I'd been through two divorces in my family. And so I felt like that also had me feeling a little bit separate from other people my age. Mm. Um, It's a lot. It was a lot. And I spent a lot of time outside as part of that. It was like a place Mm. where I could be and just be myself and um, kind of have some space just to kind of figure out who I was and what I felt about things Mm -hmm. and more sense of of freedom and spaciousness. And so... um, I think kind of all those early experiences. And then there were a lot of therapists in my family. Um, oh, really? Yeah, two social <laughs> workers and a psychologist in my family. And so it was always kind of in the back of my mind. I think I had a little bit of that, um, what do they call it, counterphobic? Like, no, I'm not gonna be that, I'm not gonna do that. I had that for a long while. And then I spent a lot of time traveling. I spent maybe 15 years living outside mm. of the States. And I oh, got so, that yeah. experience of wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> and um, got more into meditation at that point, just trying to figure out like, yeah. apparently I'm creating things for myself, no matter where in the world I am. Oh, interesting. And wanting to start to sort through some of that. Mm. Um, and then I worked for a long while in international development and was working kind of at the, like policy level, organizational change level, like a broader um, social change level and started to feel like doing something more personal and more individual might have, might feel like it was having more impact. Mm. And so I decided to move back to the States and go was, to was that like, at that point. Oh, cool. Was that like with NGOs? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I worked kind of at the intersection between um, like environmental education, sustainable farming, um, children's rights, like mm. just kind of combining some different things together and which made wilderness therapy a really good fit for me because right. it feels like it continues in that same vein of combining the natural world um, with. Yeah. yeah. Cool. That's fascinating. Yeah, I've, I've met some other people who like kind of like similar to you, like involved more with, I guess, like policy or political activism. Mm-hmm. And then feeling called to do address more of the inner work mm-hmm. as well. And I mean, ideally, they go together, right? Yeah. But for sure, there could feel like a disconnect, especially if you're working hard on something and not seeing the direct impact. And I feel like that is so common, actually, in our mm-hmm. culture. And in today's day and age, where you go to a job and you you know maybe work on the computer, you're not seeing the direct impact for humans or for animals or for mm-hmm. the planet, mm-hmm. for better or worse. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I was working kind of at this organizational level around capacity building for organizations and seeing how people's individual psychology was really influencing what they were able to do mm. impact with their organization wise and starting to see well if some of these people who were in leadership roles were actually able to sort through some of the material that was impacting the way that they were showing up and the way that they were able to implement the programs mm. that there would be a lot more benefit to the people that the programs were intended to, really, to support to help yeah yeah that's interesting i'm actually been working with someone who had a lot of experience working with Syria and like the conflict mm. there and trying to make peace there. Mm. And then um, like knowing people like, you know, even if they just talked on the phone or met over Zoom or whatever, who were actually like imprisoned or even killed and like how difficult that has been mm. and how like, you know, just, I just thought of it like with the NGO thing, like there's all these groups trying to create peace and yet the war is like ongoing and mm. we're probably all over here kind of tired of hearing about it because it's been going on for so long but it's mm -hmm. it's like situations that develop through so many causes and conditions and politics and they're so complex and mm -hmm. and then so many um people kind of on the outside trying to actually help but like feeling mm -hmm. like they can't really or it's, or it's just it's hard mm -hmm. like tough and i think the complexity requires that we work on it at different levels that we work mm -hmm. on it individually personally psychologically yeah, right um through meditation practice or through therapy or through whatever and all the way up to you know the group level and the and the policy mm -hmm. level yeah because it's so complex you're not just going to resolve it with a one a one shot right yeah yeah and they're starting to bring in more therapy and things like emdr mm -hmm. which helps work with trauma for mm -hmm. you know these workers who are trying to help with conflict like in the mm -hmm. un and these ngos and i think that's becoming mm -hmm. more kind of known and accepted like ptsd is like pretty mm -hmm. common knowledge now like we know that mm -hmm. If you're exposed to traumatic events, you can develop PTSD. But I think it wasn't that long ago when that wasn't so well known. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of debated, like, you know, is this even real or what is mm -hmm. it? And um, I think we're moving in a good direction with that. I mean, do you want to speak to that and to EMDR a little bit? Mm. Yeah, I think even with that, as we're becoming more aware of trauma and PTSD, there's still a focus on um, like single events, big mm -hmm. events that happen in our lives that cause you know trauma symptoms. But I think there's also less known a lot of little things that add up that lead to um, mm -hmm. trauma responses in people, like being misattuned to by caregivers mm. or kind of repetitive right. sense of like who I am isn't okay in the world or the world isn't safe in some way. Like some kind of like neglect to experience mm -hmm. that one incident of might not be a big deal but if it's repeated over and over mm -hmm. it develops mm -hmm. basically ptsd right yeah 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 and those are some of the templates that i was talking about initially that then we bring out into the rest of our lives mm. um in terms of feeling like i can't ask for my needs or mm. um who i am isn't welcome or, or like i'm not i'm things. not safe yeah 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 there's something wrong with me those kinds of beliefs which don't necessarily come from a single incident trauma Right. Um, and I think the somatic focus is a really helpful way of addressing some of those things. Because if you ask somebody, you know, do you have trauma or what happened? And they're like, no, my childhood was great. But if you start to watch their body <laughs> or you start to listen to the way that they speak about themselves or the, watch the way they move through the world, you start to see actually there's some things there that have been really impactful and mm -hmm. believing the body and the actions mm. more than the person's story necessarily. Yeah. 
Yeah, like listening to it and actually believing our body, like, oh, my body doesn't feel safe, for example, mm -hmm. rather than I'm fine, everything's fine, I'm okay, my childhood is fine. Like, <laughs> like that kind of thoughts we tend to have to help us cope and like deal, you know, just get through life. Yeah. Um, you know, so a lot of, yeah. Well, I think, I think the somatic piece is, is super important and EMDR is like a type of theory that, therapy that can help with trauma specifically. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you think about that? Like, we have to be able to experience that through our body in a way that it can heal or resolve, right? Mm -hmm. is that, that's part of the process, at least. Mm -hmm. I think traditional EMDR focuses a lot on cognitions, beliefs, mm. and um, things that we have memory of that have happened to us um, and can be super effective for that. And um, kind of what you were talking about at the beginning about, you know, running, running new yeah. scripts for right. yourself and kind of rewriting the old story and coming into a new way of thinking about mm your role in your life. And then for me, the somatic focus of EMDR, um, I combine it a little bit with Hakomi and combine it with um, a somatic EMDR process that's called natural processing. Hmm. And both of the, the Hakomi and the natural processing focus a little bit more on kind of our internal processes and less on a specific memory. Hmm. So those moments where like I can feel the tears welling up and I'm gonna cry, Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden I go blank and mm -hmm. the sadness is gone. Like that moment of disconnecting from myself can be targeted through a somatic EMDR process. And I can start to increase my tolerance to be able to mm. stay, for example, with the sadness in this case. Um, and start to gain more access to the signals from my body and the information that that holds rather than each time hitting a limit with what I'm allowed to be with or what I'm allowed to feel and then bouncing off of mm, it. That's right. one of the things that gets us into those repetitive loops in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds like when you work with people at times, you're almost, even if they're sane or even thinking that things are okay to help guide them to a deeper place and feel what needs to be felt there. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of a balance between believing people when they <laughs> tell you things and right. then also just listening and watching and, and being attuned and... yeah. That's one of the things that's great about the psychedelic work, in fact, is that mm. some of those manager parts of us that are like, no, everything's good, nothing to see here, <laughs> um, fade a little bit more into the background and get a little bit of support in order to let some of the, the other sides of the story come through, because it's never the whole story that everything's 100% yeah. good. That's interesting. It's kind of, it's a both and, right? Like, yeah. you could say, okay, here we are, like, everything is good on some level. Yeah. And, you know, like, let's do, let's, like, heal what needs to be healed. and. And get a little deeper so you yeah how do you bring in like so that you mentioned wilderness too and like psychedelics and before we started recording you were saying like going out into wilderness is a kind of altered state mm -hmm. i thought that was really interesting mm -hmm. yeah i see a lot of the therapies these days are mindfulness focused mm -hmm. and we're often really trying to get people out of the templates from the past and into the present moment where we have a lot more choice and freedom mm. about how we respond to things rather than just reacting as we always have um, and I think all of these things, whether it's wilderness or psychedelics or EMDR or somatics or any of these things, um, are all about trying to get us into the present rather than into the past mm. templates. And so for me, being in the wilderness, um, like it requires a sense of presence. Your actual physical safety is at stake. 
it kind of forces you to be more present if you're yeah. on a rocky trail that you might slip and fall on or something like that, right? Yeah, there's yeah. the danger and then there's also the beauty mm. and the sense of awe. And so both of those things, I think, kind of channel us towards being more more present, more mindful. Mm. Um, and similar with the psychedelics, the, the sense of um, solid identity about who I am just starts to, you know, get loosened up a little right. bit. And we're able to have more, like, messiness about who we might be. Like, I don't mm. have to be this super solid, this is who I am, <laughs> and this is how I should be. It's like, I could actually be different. Mm. And just yeah. starting to have that opportunity for that possibility to open up. Um, and so I have done some work with people um, with ketamine-assisted therapy, mm-hmm. Um, actually out in wilderness settings. Oh, interesting. And that's been really potent and powerful as well. And EMDR as well in wilderness settings is very potent. I'm um, sure, yeah. Helping people choose. And EMDR, one of the things that we're often doing is around resourcing, mm-hmm. finding safe places, finding allies, finding a sense of support. Um and sometimes being out in the wilderness, those things are really easy to find. <laughs> you can you know, find a tree that feels like it's you know, big and present and protective, right. or you can you know, hide in a place that feels like it's contained and, and mm. cozy. And, and so like, allow yourself to feel that support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like that word resourcing is a little bit of like a mm. psycho jargon. Do you want to like, mm. like, mm. explain what that means to people? Yeah. Personally, in my life, I've struggled a lot with the idea of resourcing. Like the EMDR, traditionally, they have these imaginal resources where you bring in like a nurturing figure or a protective figure or those kinds of things. And in my personal work, I have a really hard time um, having an internal template that lets me um, imagine those things in a way that feels real to my nervous system. Hmm. And so I've had to be creative. and I've seen this in some of my clients as well, that doing it imaginally is not nearly as powerful as doing it experientially. Oh, and so, so like actually connecting with the tree, mm-hmm. is that what you kind of mean? Like, yeah, like connecting with something physical in the real world and the present mm. moment that holds those qualities, um, for me, goes in much more than trying yeah. to imagine it. So the idea with resourcing is that... Um, you take actual experiences you've had that are positive, moments where you felt powerful or um, supported or Mm -hmm. peaceful or whatever the quality is um, and go back into them and really let yourself feel them in your body Mm. so that you have kind of a shortcut back into those states of being. Um, Yeah. And so there's, there's like the actual experiences that you may have had. And then there's the, the kind of experiences that you'd like to have that you haven't yet had that you put, (laughs) templates in place for to try and move your way mm. into which is a right like open up to that possible possibility that you could have that experience that things could change in that way mm-hmm. that's important mm-hmm. so you like in terms of psychedelics you mostly have worked with ketamine with people like ketamine assisted therapy and a little bit with cannabis which oh, yeah. has surprised okay. me um, what have you been... what have you seen with that yeah um that's that's a substance that has a lot of stigma i think and it really does. Um, but I think it it does have a lot of healing potential, obviously, and people kind of know that on some level, but there's a lot of negative stereotypes too. And uh, um, yeah. 
Yeah, when I mention it to clients, people often say, no, I just feel paranoid and anxious, and I don't think that's going to be helpful for me. <laughs> but what I'm finding is that in the therapeutic setting, it's actually, it takes on different qualities to it. That's amazing. That's so cool to hear about. Um, I had somebody the other day doing a cannabis session who, like in trauma work, we talk about bottom-up processing versus mm -hmm. top-down processing. Mm -hmm. And the bottom-up processing is the somatic perspective from the body and letting the information emerge. And the top-down perspective is from the mind. And it's kind of the psychoeducation um, perspective. And this client was working with some trauma in the body. And she was literally describing how if she accessed that part of her body from the top down, that it felt like there was a lot of shame and a lot of shoulds and a lot of voices around how mm. she shouldn't have done the thing and it shouldn't have happened that way. Mm. And if she went from the bottom of that sensation up, she was like, this is the route where it's just sensation and I can just mm. be with it and I can just feel it. And mm. I had her going in from the side and she was like, oh, this is like, it's like a house and I can like peek in the windows, but I can't actually go in from this direction. So she just had a really visceral mm. experience of the top down and the bottom oh, cool. up. It sounds very, and, like you're saying, experiential, embodied, mm -hmm. uh, real for them. Yeah. Like a, a real experience. That's amazing. Yeah. And this client now, like she has the option, <clears throat> she can do ketamine sessions or cannabis sessions. And she's been choosing to do cannabis sessions because the trauma work we've been able to do has been so powerful, like surprising to both of us. Oh, cool. That's cool to hear. It's been. Yeah. That's something that I wanted want to explore more, like maybe professionally in my own life, and uh, but also share on the podcast. That I think cannabis is... Um, mm -hmm potentially like very healing very powerful mm. and actually very psychedelic mm. so i did that we were talking before we started recording mm. i did this training called the psychedelic sitter school mm -hmm. that uses cannabis to help train people to you know have um healing experiences basically insight you know journey work but also geared towards therapists to help people heal and, and however they need to heal and i think the oftentimes it's like we talk about set and setting I think that's just a thousand percent true with cannabis. Like if mm. you take it into the right set and setting with intentionality and connect with it in a certain way. And um, also, to be honest, I think if you are not habitually using it or mm. and or you take a break from it for a mm. period of time before doing an experience mm -hmm. like that, it will be more powerful. Mm. I think that's pretty well known, too. But I think it's worth saying. Mm -hmm. So um, it just seems like something that has a lot of like we're just tapping in the potential of what it could be. Mm -hmm. and uh, to hold space where it could be used therapeutically or healing or for journey work. Um, and I think that could be different than habitually using it. Not to like shame that or make it wrong, but I kind of mm -hmm. see those as two different ways of using it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what you're saying about set and setting, it's I, th I like to think about parts a lot in therapy mm -hmm. work. And it's kind of like what part of you is choosing that medicine? Is it the part of you that's wanting to disconnect from mm -hmm. your present moment yeah. experience or is it the part of you that's wanting to dive in, dive in. to your present like what is the intention mm -hmm. and where's that coming from yeah, yeah. i've had I've, before i started to offer it um in my practice i started to experiment a little bit and my previous experience with cannabis was not great recreationally i was kind of like i don't know why people are doing this therapeutically it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me but i'm going to try it because it's one of the mm. options ketamine and cannabis are like the two options yeah. right and i was really surprised for myself um, and it's kind of changed how I look at it and think about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe um, maybe a better way to say it would be because I'm still trying. I'm trying to trying to figure out the language and how to think about it myself. Mm -hmm. But like recreational, you know, whatever that means, versus a more intentional use. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, mm -hmm. setting like having a good intention for yourself. 
will make a difference. Mm -hmm. But then I think in the context of therapy, like especially if you're in like the setting, like an office or outside of nature or whatever it is, mm -hmm. and you have a person who's really holding that space for you, mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference mm -hmm. because there's a certain accountability with that, mm -hmm. right? There's, just, there's a certain added intensity to have someone else there with you. Right. <laughs> less, less easy to escape. Yeah, right? your intention. Yeah. I mean, it could be to check out, but to have somebody there sitting with you saying, what are you paying attention to now? What are you noticing now? And what's that like in your body now? Yeah. Like it's a very different yeah, just experience. that, just noticing what's true for you now and coming back to that over and over can be so powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, inter it's interesting how our minds can escape, right? How we can check out, how we can... And I think that's natural. Mm -hmm. Like I did, you know, one of my teachers said, uh, disassociating is natural, like... Like I watch Netflix at night or whatever, like it's mm. to like not shame that or maybe, you mm. know, not to try to be some superhuman, mindful, mm. always on kind of, but to find the, that ebb and flow. Mm. But um, I think for a lot of us, like the checking out becomes problematic and becomes habitual and becomes mm. a place where um, mm. we can start to like miss out on our own life. Right? Mm. I mean, there's a, That's one of the things that I love about the Hakomi perspective is there's a lot of warmth and gentleness towards those protective strategies that we have mm. and right that's a good way to put it yeah. if there's checking out it's like there's a good reason you're checking out mm. there's something about that that's been important to you for survival in some way like thank god you learned how to do it because if you'd had to face everything all at once instead of having the option to like put the brake <laughs> on by checking out it probably would have been too much and too overwhelming mm. It's like a way of titrating into our experience. Like you get to check out, you get to take a break, you get to come back, you get to feel it, you get to be in it, you get to do it. Mm. And you get to go away again. And there's actually a lot of wisdom in that. And I think yeah. having more and more choice about when we check out and how we check out is one of the, the points of therapy for me. Mm. So to have more choice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. I think that's part of um, becoming more mature or you mm. know developing... Uh, becoming a more full, complete, integrated person, have more choice, mm -hmm. just in general, I think, mm -hmm. like in a relationship or mm -hmm. with, you know, yeah, what you're doing, <laughs> how you're doing it. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. something, I think, I feel like there's something in the human being, like I feel it myself that, that wants to move towards that place, mm -hmm. to be able to have conscious choice and then take responsibility for the choices you do make, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, that's one of the, the fundamental reasons to do therapy is like more degrees of freedom mm -hmm. more degrees of choice and less you know the past just coming through and running the show for us and more of a sense of like this is mine this is my life these are my feelings mm. this is my body like nice. what do i want to do with it and how do i want to do it like yeah it's like increased ownership with that mm -hmm. right more freedom more responsibility yeah. <laughs> everyone hears that but it's true yeah <laughs> Well, um, and you've you've taken clients and people like out into the wilderness, like, like to like what is what is that like? What does that look like? Mm. Um, it's intense. Like, would it just be and you and one other person? That's how I've been doing it. Yeah, um, with people that I've been working with for a while, so we have a solid foundation together mm. and a lot of trust already built and a lot of um, therapeutic work that we've done. Um, and similarly for the ketamine, like I'm not just throwing people into intense altered states, whether it's wilderness or EMDR or ketamine, mm. just kind of right off the bat, that there's a period for me of um, establishing safety and trust both between me and the client and between the client and themselves. Mm. Um, 
And so going out for the wilderness trips then becomes an extension of work that we've already done in one way or another. Mm. And so I've done backpacking trips, I've done river trips, I've done cabin trips. Um, I've also done like full days or half days just kind of out in the foothills nearby. And those experiences can look, you know, a number of different ways depending on what we're working on and what we're doing. Um, Often with the wilderness stuff, finding a way to represent what's happening internally, representing it externally out in the natural world can be really helpful. So I'm thinking of a session with somebody um, where she was choosing where we were going to walk and we got to kind of a a slope, a semi-steep slope. And she stopped and she was like, I, I can't, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. It's too, it's too much. It's like, she wanted to go on the other side of that. And she was like, we can't get there. Like it was too steep. It was too steep. And we stopped and we sat down for a while. And after a little bit, she was like, oh my God, this is how I do my entire life. Like there's some place I want to get to. And then I get to a point and I think it's too much and it's too steep and I can't do it. And I don't stop and sit down and like give myself the time just to feel what it's like. We did that, and then we went down the slope together, and we got to the point that she wanted to get to. And so there's often things that show up in the environment kind of Mm. unexpectedly that are mirrors for whatever's happening in our life. That's beautiful. And it's beautiful. It feels like um, both the the ketamine and the cannabis or the wilderness feel kind of like co-therapists to me, Mm. that they introduce in um, new material in a really supportive, gentle way that helps people just see really clearly what's happening in their own lives. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love that that story. And I think what you just said really struck me that ketamine or cannabis or whatever psychedelic and or wilderness that that could be like, that's like a co-therapist or that mm-hmm. that could be the main therapist even. Like mm-hmm. your job could just be to kind of, again, use that phrase, hold space or bear witness mm-hmm. or maintain the kind of intention that's been set, right? Mm-hmm. So that they don't, escape or leave the experience and stay with it and allow that to be the teacher because mm-hmm. i think it's interesting for me to think about like sometimes it almost feels like we are you know like like with joseph campbell's work like the hero of a thousand paces like we're the hero of our own story that we're mm-hmm. telling in our mind and it's almost like mm-hmm. you know it's maybe this isn't true for everyone but that like our, mo- our life is kind of like a movie and we're like the main character mm-hmm. and it's all kind of just happening in our own mind on some level right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like your story like it's beautiful it's like that was all in her own mind like mm-hmm. it was too steep and she sat for a while and then it wasn't too steep mm-hmm. it's not like the mountainside changed right <laughs> nothing changed at all yeah. other than the fact that she had somebody to sit with her and be with her and she got to feel how steep it was and how scary it was and then she got to s- reflect on like this is what i do this is how i do my life <laughs> yeah and nothing nothing changed externally at all right yeah right and someone else could maybe their way of going through life is just to run down so fast that they fall over or whatever. Mm. That would be another place to pause and like totally. <laughs> totally. put the brakes on. Yeah. And for me, this idea of having a co-therapist, when I'm th- sitting in the therapist seat, it has me working less hard. And it really helps mm. with um, the sense of like efforting or striving or pushing or, or doing. It lets mm. me rest more in the therapist seat and lets... Um, you know, the client's own wisdom or the wisdom of the natural world or the wisdom of the medicine support in a way where I'm not having to be the main engine. Interesting, for, yeah. Which helps a lot with burnout and feeling right. overwhelmed as a therapist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that's uh, 
what is there, a risk or, or part of being a therapist at times that maybe other people don't really realize that much, but mm -hmm. that how much, you know, it can be a lot of work or a lot of effort. And that could be, actually be a sign that the person you're trying to work with isn't mm -hmm. doing as much themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're trying too much to make something happen for them instead mm -hmm. of allowing their own process. But mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a fine balance, right? Because, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you, um, I'm curious, like, with something like ketamine, like a lot of people talk about plant spirit medicine mm. and, you know, things like, you know, psilocybin mushrooms or ayahuasca, there's like this spirit or cannabis, there's a spirit. Mm. But ketamine is a synthetic, right? It's a chemical mm. created in a laboratory. Do you think there's also a kind of spirit, so to speak, or intelligence within that? Mm. Or is it more, because you just use like that, it's like a co-therapist. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's just unlocking something for people or, mm. and or just shifting, going into a different, state of being consciously, I think, can in itself, with the right sense setting again, be healing. Like Stan Groff talks about that, mm -hmm. that altered states are in themselves healing, that they shift who we think we are, they show us different possibilities, mm -hmm. if they're done in the right way, mm -hmm. or facilitated in the right way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ketamine for me has a certain feel to it. I don't, I don't know what I would say about it having a spirit or not, but it definitely has uh, like a warm holding feel to it. It feels to me like it creates this really wide spacious um kind of warm field of possibilities mm. and it feels like the whatever is going to happen whether it's a kind of a blissful supported resourcing experience or whether it's a diving into the hard stuff kind of experience it feels like it has that same kind of of holding capacity yeah for it so it definitely has a, a feel and um like a particular emotional tone that it kind of creates mm. you um, said like warm holding mm -hmm. i think that's like uh i think that's helpful to share with people because mm. when i first heard about ketamine being used with therapy i was like really mm. kind of surprised and mm. my idea of it was that it was like this clinical anesthesia mm. is that the mm. word like mm. to numb you out so you could undergo surgery or something right and so yeah i've been you know i've, I've had a few different conversations on this podcast about people doing ketamine assisted therapy and yeah so it's uh but I think I also think the fact that it's not so well known is an advantage to it because it doesn't mm -hmm. have as many preconceptions around it, mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem like it's been used that much in popular culture, which mm -hmm. is kind of an I think it, which is an advantage for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the cannabis in terms of like the the space that it holds, the cannabis feels more vajra energy. It feels mm. like it's more direct and cutting. It feels less warm and holding. Oh, interesting. It feels like it's more like this is the thing, look, like it's, you know, for not forcing, but it's like, it's like pushing you into um, the experience that you're having. Whereas the ketamine is more just like, I'm here and whatever experience it is can emerge into this. Mm. Yeah. So they, they all feel like Some more spacious, different energies to them. Yeah. And I guess you could call them the spirit of it. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting language spirit, but we call, you know, alcohol spirits, right? Like strong alcohol. And I think, I don't know. I've been. I hope to like one day write more about this subject. Mm -hmm. But like, if you, if you kind of like hear that and you're like, oh, there's no spirit there. It's just a molecule or it's just mm -hmm. a substance. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of attitude we could put to ourselves. Like, you know, mm -hmm. what is the chemistry of a human body? And mm -hmm. there are a lot of people I think that kind of have that in their head that we're just these, you know, mechanical mm -hmm. things. Um, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't buy it. So mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that. Mm -hmm. But chemistry might be some of these chemical compounds might be kind of this borderline between what we think of as matter and what we think of as intelligence or spirit. Mm. So I think there's something there, <laughs> something's going on. Mm -hmm. 
And I think the somatic focus kind of gets us away from that mechanical view as well. Yeah. The mechanical view, I feel like, has the idea that we can we can know everything and we can figure mm-hmm. it out and there's, right. a, there's a right way to do it. And right. I feel like the somatic view or the psychedelic view or the wilderness view is like, things right. are natural. They grow, they decay, they die, they you know blow around <laughs> in the wind, they get washed away by water, they erode. Like there's just, it's much more of an organic thing. And I feel like all the psychedelic work kind of puts us in that realm of like, I am an organic being mm. growing and dying and unfolding and, yeah. and eroding and- Life is unpredictable, whatever. right? Yeah. It's amazing how unpredictable psychedelics are. And um, yeah. how unpredictable human beings are. <laughs> we think about, Perfect match. <laughs> yeah, if we think about this like mechanical view or mechanical idea, it's like things would be very predictable, like billiard balls. And that's obviously not our reality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I guess my other question about ketamine is like mm-hmm. dosage, right? You could have like a mm-hmm. low dose mm-hmm. or a medium, I guess, or a high. Or I mean, mm-hmm. at some point, the human who has taken a too large amount is gone, right? You're mm-hmm. kind of, mm-hmm. that's what it would be used like for surgery, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have a bias of the low-dose work. Um, They call it psycholytic work. And it allows the client to be present in the room and to feel the presence of the therapist in the room. Mm. And it allows a lot of attachment repair and relational work to happen during the session. Um, In the higher-dose work, translating what's happening inside to outside gets difficult, and so the relational channel isn't as clear. and the, the mind channel, the word channel, just isn't as accessible at the higher doses. Um, so I, I kind of have a bias that being able to work with Hakomi or with EMDR or some of those other um, methods in the psychedelic space, for me, working with the lower doses is a really good fit for mm, that. That's beautiful. That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. And then like more of you is online, so to speak, right, or present. Mm-hmm. There's a place for both of them. I mean, the other thing you're sharing is that before you would do that with someone, you would establish a relationship. You would mm-hmm. kind of lay a lot of groundwork, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like to have people, like we were talking about initially developing a vocabulary of sensation and a vocabulary of emotion mm. and um, a sense of some of the different parts of them that are at play in their life, mm. some of the protector parts or some of the child parts or some of the resource parts or whatever parts they may be, um, working with some of those things prior to going into either the wilderness space or the psychedelic space, I think gives people a really solid foundation because it is disorienting to be in the unknown Mm. and having some kinds of um, like landmarks or signposts or whatever that would be to help orient to that space to me seems really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. That makes so much sense to me. And also, like, you're setting the stage for the what you want to work on, like what the, mm-hmm. you know, what the things are that need attention or that need to be processed or looked at or, mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing with either wilderness work or psychedelic work is, like, you can have a plan, you can have an intention, and it's great to have that and to put some energy into coming up with that and getting clear for yourself. And it's great just to let it go <laughs> and let it happen because yeah. the truth is you can't, you can't know what's going to happen, what's yeah. going to come up. And being in that unknown space is part of what we're wanting to learn how to navigate mm. in our lives. Like, how do we show up in the present moment and let it be unknown and let it be molded and shaped um, by us as we live it? Right. Yeah, and that's maybe becoming increasingly rare in our world. Yeah. It's always there. I don't know, but there's this sense that as our technology progresses and we get 
air conditioning and refrigerators and Amazon deliveries, like the, <laughs> the comforts and the able, yeah. at least the illusion of control is always increasing. Yeah. So yeah. then there's something in us that wants to like, you know, totally get out of that for a while. I think our sense of aliveness and our sense of right. wildness really wants to not be in control the whole time. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. With travel or with, you know, being outside in a storm or even mm-hmm. biking over here in the rain this morning, there's a sense of like, I don't get to say how much it's going to rain between, you know, where I started <laughs> from and where I ended up. And I'm yeah. just going to be out in it. And there's something mm. that feels really alive about yeah. that process. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think, um, when I was a kid, we had this huge hurricane come, huh. Hurricane Fran in North Carolina. Huh. <laughs> and it's funny how we give them names, but uh, the neighborhood that I was in, like, we literally didn't have power for two full weeks. Wow. And it was, you know, hot and muggy and um, all the neighbors, you know, came together and like grilled food and had these cookouts and yeah. shared water if people needed water. And um, I was a kid, it must have been like, I don't know, 10 or something, but mm. meeting some of these neighbors, probably, you know, for the mm. first and mm. sadly the last time, probably, yeah. <laughs> like having more interaction with all these different people that yeah. like live next to you that you never meet. And so yeah. there was, you know, it was this terrible natural disaster on the one hand. On the other hand, it was mm. this, like when I remember it now, it's mostly positive. It was like I was loving it as a kid. I didn't have to go to school. Mm. There are all these trees down. There are all these like people with chainsaws and doing all this stuff. And, yeah. And yeah. I'm sure you learned an absolute ton, both about yeah. the people around you and about the way winds and water can move right. and the way trees respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. And just like the possibility that yeah. all these things we take for granted could go offline, could go down. All these systems could yeah. shut down for a while. Yeah. Even the roadways that we drive on. Yeah. 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 And I think in some ways the wilderness work or the psychedelic work is about creating a mini version of that for ourselves Mm. in our life. Like all the systems are down, all the (laughs) things that you would normally rely on are kind of coming apart at the seams. And who who do you want to be in that? Mm. Yeah. Who do you want to be in that sense that I can handle this or I can interact here? I can, Mm. I'll be okay. Like Mm. find that, that strength in yourself Mm. (laughs) or trust even, Mm. even if the strength isn't there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Well, do you have any um, last words or thoughts for us? Oh, I thought of one other thing I was going to ask you mm. about. Your practice is called Lion's Breath Counseling, mm. right? It is. What's, what's the Lion's Breath about? <laughs> um, a couple things. One was when I was little, I spent a lot of time reading, and mm. the Narnia books were some uh, of my favorite books. And Aslan felt to me like a really, like when we talk about EMDR resourcing and you're trying to think of, you know, models of strength or nurturance or those kinds of things, like Aslan was one of the the yeah. characters that fit into that for me. An amazing character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, his fierceness and his gentleness at the same time, like he had mm-hmm. this roar that would kind of like shake the world, mm-hmm. but he also had this kind of like embracing, loving presence to him. Yeah. So the strength and the and the tenderness together really drew me. Um, and then we did, when I was at Naropa, we had a career class, and we did some kind of guided visualization thing where you were imagining, you know, walking up this hill and walking through the gate, and you walk through it, and in front of you is kind of your, your perfect career path, and mm. you were meant to have an ally as you walked through the gate, and this lion showed up for mm, me in nice. that process. Beautiful. And so it just kind of felt like an organic coming together. I was like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and I wanted something, obviously, that had something to do with nature that felt important to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. Talk about wild. <laughs> yeah. It's like a symbol or literal wildness there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. It's really good to talk with you.